And uh, as we begin, let me lead us again in a short prayer. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord God, as we uh, uh, look at your word, uh, we pray that you would grant us all understanding. Would we long to listen to you, to come to know Jesus, uh, to listen to him and to have eternal life through him. In his name we pray. Amen. We're living in a world desperate for hope, aren't we? Just the other day, a delivery driver came to the door, I got chatting with him, and he said to me, I hope there's a way out of this. He didn't sound too confident, though. It's not a bad question, is it? Where is hope to be found? Often we find ourselves looking to ourselves, our own resources, our strength, or many today are looking to science. I'm not sure there are many left still looking to politicians. Where is hope to be found? It's been a question rumbling in the background like distant thunder as we've been working our way through these opening chapters of Isaiah. And I want us this morning to dig into Isaiah chapter 11 together and see why Jesus alone, Jesus only, is the sure hope any of us can have. Isaiah looks forward from his day and sees the brightest beacon of hope shining in the person of Jesus Christ. He sees this shoot from Jesse. Uh, Just this week I came across a quaint but timely quote from Corrie ten Boom. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look to Christ, you'll be at rest. God's word is always relevant, but as this virus has spread, as life has changed so dramatically, God's word now seems ever more relevant, searingly relevant. You see, if we want answers, God is the one we need to turn to. But the problem in Isaiah's day is God is the one person they're not turning to. They too are a people desperate for hope, but they refuse to turn to the only place of hope. Back in chapter 1, Isaiah says they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Like many today, they're looking to themselves or others for their security and safety. Remember chapter 2 ends with the warning, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? But if they're not to trust in humanity, where is hope to be found? Uh, Well, time and time again in Isaiah, we've seen judgment prophesied against God's people, but then immediately a ray of hope and salvation. We might remember back in chapter 4, we were introduced to the branch In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The nation deserved judgment. Indeed, Isaiah realizes he deserves judgment. God will raise up Assyria against his people in judgment. But it won't be the end of them. At the end of our passage last week, we find Assyria is going to be cut down, never to rise again. 
End of chapter 10. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. But in our passage today, we discover a stump. God's people have also been cut down, but unlike Assyria, it's not all over. We've already come across a stump at the end of chapter 6. But what's new here is this hope is now focused on an individual. One ruler to come. A perfect ruler. And that's the first thing we see in this chapter. You'll see if you've got the outline there in front of you. Verses 1 to 5. Jesus, the perfect ruler. I wonder if we're still one of those people glued to the latest release from Boris as he's flanked with his advisors. Maybe we've got a bit jaded, a bit bored of it all already. Uh, There is endless discussion, isn't there, at the moment about how to get through this uh, pandemic. Do we need to extend the lockdown? When can schools go back? More testing, more vaccinations. And it raises the issue of what kind of leader we want. Uh, Many countries don't get to choose their leader, but we have some choice in a democracy How do you choose a good leader? Surely we want someone, don't we, who knows what the right course of action is all the time. And they also have the ability to do it. We also want someone who's morally good and righteous. Just listen again to God's word. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Uh, This is a bit like a, a CV or manifesto or personal profile for this shoot, this branch. He's going to be a new king. That's the reference to Jesse. Jesse, do you remember, was King David's father. Elsewhere in the Bible, God's king is going to be a descendant of David. But it's not what's said here. No, this is going to be a new David, a perfect David. And the dominant theme is he'll have the spirit resting on him. The spirit of the Lord, not a power, but a person. And he will enable and strengthen this king to rule perfectly. Interestingly, in John 1, verse 32, there's a line about the Spirit remaining or resting on Jesus. It might seem incidental, but it's a pointer back to Isaiah 11 to underline Jesus is this perfect king. Or Luke chapter 4, again and again, we're told about Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit. He returns in the power of the Spirit. Indeed, Jesus himself points to Isaiah 61 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Jesus is this spirit-filled, spirit-anointed, perfect king. And it is a glorious picture in Isaiah 11, isn't it? Unlike Ahaz, here is a ruler with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He always knows the right thing to do. Unlike the king of Assyria, this king has the spirit of counsel and might. He not only knows the right thing to do, he has the power always to do it. Our world seems chock full of people who might know how to deal with a problem, but they've got no sway. Or they've got great power, 
but they only use it to serve their own ends or just political expediency. We're told all the time we need to listen to the experts. The only problem, though, is what do we do when the experts disagree? Who do we listen to then? Here is someone who is always right. He is the true expert. And what's more than that, his, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. I don't know what smell will always get you out of bed in the morning. I don't know what does it for you. That bacon, coffee, pancakes perhaps. The, the, the pleasing aroma in this king's life is going God's way. Fearing the Lord, serving him wholeheartedly and joyfully. This isn't some king whose heart's not in it. His focus, his aim, his goal is on pleasing and serving God. So fear of the Lord here isn't fear of punishment. It can't be Jesus never sinned. He had nothing to fear from his heavenly father. It is a trembling excitement, joy, love and adoration in knowing God and serving him wholeheartedly. It's such an attractive idea. No reluctant servitude, but finding the deepest delight in a perfect relationship with God. And what's his rule like? Well, just look with me again at verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of an injustice. If if you have, you'll know just how incredible this is. He judges impartially and perfectly. He's a divine king. As we heard earlier, some families are using the Meals with Jesus Bible studies at the moment. And uh, if you are, then uh, recently we were looking at Luke 7, where a woman who's lived a sinful life washes Jesus' feet with her tears. The host at the dinner party thinks, doesn't Jesus know she's a sinner? But Jesus knows what we're like on the inside. He doesn't judge by appearances. He knows if someone is genuinely trusting in him or not. So it's no good trying to keep up appearances with this king. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He's not swayed by externals. He sees us as we really are. I wonder how that makes us feel. And judging the poor here doesn't mean handing down a judgment. It means setting things right for them. He'll sort it all out. Wouldn't we love that at a time like this? Someone who can just... Sort it all out. This king won't let his people down. Those who are poor, who are meek, those who recognize they are helpless, weak, and powerless to save themselves, if we come to Jesus, we find that he is for us. But before we move on, though, we do need to notice he's not someone to be trifled with. Do you see in verse 4, his word will bring victory. We don't want to be on the wrong side of this king. A two-meter gap won't help. No amount of social distancing can protect us from the rod of his mouth or the breath of his lips. John picks up this language in Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
So side of Jesus, we mustn't forget. He is the best king, the divine king, a perfect king, and a king who will judge his enemies. His word isn't to be trifled with or ignored. Now, Jesus is the perfect ruler. But what will he achieve? And it brings us on to verses 6 to 9. Jesus, the paradise restorer. Jesus is the one who restores paradise. So I guess right now most of us are just looking forward to uh, normal life being resumed. We'd settle for that, wouldn't we? But how is this for a poetic picture? Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Total peace. No hostilities, no danger, no fear. A year ago, this would have been a pretty sweet idea. Today, it's something that seems almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Do you remember those um, shots we saw in the newspapers of uh, an elderly person staring down the empty aisles in the supermarket? Do you remember those days there'd been panic buying? Uh, Everyone had put themselves first, and when a crisis hits, uh, who is it who suffers? The poor, the elderly, the weak, the vulnerable. But here, no no fights in the tin goods section, no scrapping over the last loo roll. Uh, Children are among the most vulnerable, but here they are totally safe. Did you see, um, there was an article just, I think, a couple of days ago about why the government have been so keen to keep schools open. Uh, One of the reasons was because so many children are much safer at school than at home. They're at real risk of abuse. Numbers are hard to pin down, but roughly 10 million children globally are trapped in modern-day slavery. But just look at what this king will achieve. It is a scene of complete tranquility and safety and reconciliation, just like Eden, humanity and creation in harmony. It is the fall reversed. Wolves are not naturally friendly with lambs. That is pretty obvious, isn't it? I've uh, yet to hear of a lion passing up a fattened calf in favour of straw. I I wouldn't pass up a burger for straw. But in this vision, whole natures are changed. The behaviour of these creatures is utterly transformed. I would shudder if one of my children went anywhere near a venomous snake, let alone put their hand over the entrance to the hole. But no such worries here. It's the complete opposite of Genesis 3, isn't it? Jesus will utterly undo the fall and its effects. Can we think of anything better? Can I say if we're not longing for Jesus, or rather if we're longing for anything more than Jesus, we haven't really understood him as he truly is. And maybe we spotted that reference to the holy mountain in verse 9. This is a mashup of a new Eden and a new Zion. It's heaven on earth. This is picture language, but figurative doesn't mean fictional. If I say it's raining cats and dogs, animals aren't literally falling out of the sky, but it's still raining. In fact, it's chucking it down. You still need to take an umbrella when you go out. 
What Jesus will bring about is nothing less than a perfect new creation. And it also means to be with Jesus is the safest, most secure place to be. The other day I was reading an article about a woman whose husband died aged 41. It was totally sudden, utterly unexpected. But she says this, the safety Jesus offered would look different from what I expected, but it would be ever more secure than anything I could have designed. She then comments about living in the face of COVID-19 and says, it is not my vigilance, but rather Jesus himself who keeps me safe. Isn't it what Isaiah 11 is saying? Perfect safety is not found in our own strength, but Jesus Christ. It's not found ultimately in a vaccine or social distancing or finances, but true safety is only found in Jesus. We long for security, and here it is. This vignette gets picked up again by Isaiah in chapter 65 and there he spells out more of the new heavens and the new earth. And so by the time we get to the end of the Bible, we read, we read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The security, the safety of Isaiah 11 finds its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns and ushers in this new creation. But it's not always easy to trust God, is it? Maybe our job situation is unsettled. It could be the stress of homeschooling. It might be deep loneliness, perhaps relational difficulties. We might just start asking, does God make mistakes? Is he really in control? Is this really where everything is heading? When so much has changed over the last few months, here are the most important things that never change. Jesus is the perfect ruler. And despite everything going on, he will still bring about this glorious future. But it does beg the question, well, who is this for? Who gets to be part of this paradise? And how can we make sure we'll get there? And so finally, we turn to verses 10 to 16, and Jesus, the people regatherer. Isaiah now looks forward to a promised return. You see, in and through Jesus, his people will make it to this promised, restored paradise. Let's pick it up again in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. 
but they will swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there'll be a highway from Assyria from the, for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. There's a place uh, we used to visit as a family uh, pretty frequently and it had a, a large wooden fort for children to play in. And at the top it had these huge flags flying over the whole castle. And it's a little like the picture in verse 10. This ruler now will be raised up like a signal, a banner, a flag for the nations to rally to. And did we spot now, he's not just a descendant of Jesse, a new David. Now he's somehow preceding Jesse, a root of Jesse. So we're left waiting for one who will come from God's people, a king who will be raised up, but also a king with ancient origins. So we read in Micah chapter 5, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. People from all over will flock to this king and join him in his resting place. They get to share his glory. Great leaders don't tend to invite us into their homes. Certainly I've never been uh, invited. I'm still awaiting my invitation. But like a second exodus, God will draw his people to him in and through the person of this king. In verses 12 to 16, God will gather his people from all the ends of the earth. They're a a reunified people, verse 13. They're a victorious people, verse 14. And nothing can get in their way home, verses 15 and 16. But when will all this take place? Do you see, twice we're told it's in that day. But which day? Uh, Was it back in 539 BC when Cyrus let the exiles go home? Perhaps, or we might say in part. Like so many things in scripture, there's a sense of the now and not yet. The day to this door has opened. When Jesus talks of his death on the cross, he says in John 12... And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. His death on the cross is like a flag planted in the ground. You see, today Jesus is rallying his troops. He's gathering his people to himself. Will we rally to him? And if we do, we will find perfect rest. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, says Jesus. Or the apostle Paul can say, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus, like a magnet, is drawing people from every nation to him as God gathers his people in. As people trust in Jesus and submit to him, they become part of this gathered people. But there is also a final fulfillment to look forward to. In Revelation 7, John receives this stunning vision. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Perhaps recent events have prompted us to think things through a bit more. But we might have taken stock of where life is heading, where my life is heading. It has been a tremendous comfort to me this week to remember Jesus Christ is the perfect ruler who ushers in the perfect creation for God's regathered people and nothing absolutely nothing can or will change that he will get his people home but still we might be asking well how can this king bring all this about or we might be thinking how can I be part of this people I'm not sure Well, Isaiah's already given us a huge hint back in chapter 6. See, Isaiah knows he doesn't deserve to be in God's presence. But here is a king who can take a people under deserved judgment and transform them into the redeemed, glorious people of God. How? In chapter 6, it was a live coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice Isaiah's sin atoned for. In chapter 53, it'll be the suffering servant dying in the place of a sinful people. It is through his death that Jesus establishes this people. He he gathers them in through the cross. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it is through his death you can be brought into his kingdom today. We need to turn to Jesus, recognize our need of forgiveness, repent of the ways we've rejected God's good rule and trust in him and in him alone. But, but don't for one second think it's about what we do. At the moment we're being bombarded with things to do, wash your hands, keep your distance, self-isolate, learn how to homeschool and so on. Every email is another top 10 tips on how to survive this crisis. Uh, But just look down at the the whole chapter again. And can you spot how many things we're told to do in this chapter? None. Jesus does it all. It is all about him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're inactive or don't do anything at all. Just come back next week or read on to chapter 12. But ultimately, it is all about Jesus. Our hope is 100% in him. Or at least it should be. All we need to do is rally to him. Take refuge in him. Lean on him. Trust him. Depend on him for this life and the next. So as we close, how do we cope with today? Well, really the same way we coped with yesterday and the same way we cope with tomorrow by looking to Jesus. He alone is the perfect ruler who ushers in the perfect creation for God's regathered people. As the old hymn puts it, O pilgrim bound for the heavenly land, never lose sight of Jesus. Or maybe we know this line, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this wonderful portrait of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for reminding us just what a perfect ruler he is. Please help each one of us cling to him. Please would we remember he is ruling today in power and has the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and of might and the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Please help us look forward with hope and confidence to this future he has guaranteed for us through his death on the cross. And we ask that in the days ahead, many from all over the world would be rallying to him and finding life and joy, security and safety in him. And we ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen.